Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for March 1st, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, good to have you all on. And tonight we're very excited for the third time, um, one of our favorite guests that we just started having in the past year, um, longtime CNN contributor and professor at George Mason University, Bill Snyder will be our guest um, tonight, about 20 minutes into the show, and we can't wait to discuss all of the happenings that have gone on this weekend and previously um, with him. But until then, we've got a lot of things to discuss. We've actually got, like, really big topics. We don't have to have too many because the topics we have are just so um, important. And the first one we're going to talk about, it's not so much important politically. It's important just to the country's well-being and safety and just kind of, I guess, on some ways like our um, mental sounds like the wrong word, but just feeling secure about being able to move around the country, and that's the coronavirus. Um, it's affecting really or potentially any uh, country in our, in our globe now, and uh, America is no, you know, not immune from this in any way. There was a death in Washington State. And I don't know all the details, and I certainly don't know all the medical implications, but obviously, I think, by and large, Americans would like to see this not be a problem. People don't want to politicize it, even though a lot of people claim that people want to politicize it, and maybe that's politicizing it. Um, Catherine, um, kind of what's your first take on you know what's going on with the uh, reality and then the maybe sometimes misguided fear of the coronavirus? Well, I think it's um, a manifestation of years and years of not um, paying attention or not paying as much attention or in making the investment in, in uh, the treatment and not treatment, but the um, handling of these kind of uh, potential pandemics. I've, I've listened, I've, I've, I'm, I'm interested in this and I've listened to a lot of a couple of podcasts and I've been listening to the news about it and they all, a lot of the scientists are saying, you know, we should have, we should have been better prepared. We should be better prepared for these things. We sort of know what to do, but we don't make the investment. So um, I I think that's, you know, it's just another example. And it's not just uh, this administration or this uh, or the Republican party or the right or the left. It's, sort of a lack of um, willingness to uh, make this investment uh, long-term. So that's a disappointment. Um, in this particular case, I think we've, you know, seen a lot a lot of um, dismissal of sort of the science around things. So I think that makes it particularly uh, stinging in uh 
in this specific coronavirus that's happening right now. Yeah, and I could hear when you were starting to talk about this, you were saying it's a long-term thing. It's not just, you know, the past three years. It's not, you know, the administration before or the one before that. It's one of those long-term things we could go back year after year and that's where really you would hope politicians would come back and fix it because if, if something goes back to the Truman administration or the Nixon administration, I mean, it's gone so long, let's not point fingers. Let's just solve it. Um, and still we're so you know partisan and politicized that maybe we can't do that. Um, Tim, what's your thoughts? Um you know who has the toughest job in Washington, D.C., to me right now? It's a fellow by the name of Xu Tankai. He is the Chinese ambassador to the United States. Uh, he has to convince our government that his country is doing everything they can in combating uh, the coronavirus. He has to swat away these crazy conspiracy theories that, that we've all heard about. Um, one of them came from Tom Cotton, who claims the Chinese may have created the virus in, in a yeah. lab. You know, that that doesn't help. And, and he has to deal with, you know, the White House and, and who's in it. Um, no, it shouldn't be politicized, but, of course... The usual suspects are doing just that. You've heard about the speech Friday night and the Democrats' new hoax. And, uh, oh, my goodness. Um, you know, ev ev everything seems to be politicized nowadays, and this is no different. And and it shouldn't be because we, we, we've got some major problems, over 80,000 people now are infected in two months and nearly 3,000 have died. We've had a death here. Uh, we've got it having spread now into several states on the West Coast. Um, we, we, we hear these worrisome stories about the Centers for Disease Control and the lack of staff because of a hiring freeze there. And, of course, the American people, and as we've seen with the stock market, the business community is a little shook by this. And, no, it's not the media creating a panic that is utter nonsense. They better take this thing very, very, very seriously because uh, this could be a pandemic, you know, just at the snap of your fingers. Yeah, I, one of the more irresponsible things I heard is someone we discussed a few weeks ago because he was given the Medal of Freedom um, at a State of the Union, Rush Limbaugh, he actually said, oh, this is no worse than the common cold, which obviously that's not science, that's not medicine when you say that, but what makes that even worse is my understanding is, is it starts out appearing like it's a common cold. And so you think, well, I don't need to treat it much, and then it ends up not being a common cold. It's much worse. And so that's like the absolute worst um, ailment you could compare it to uh, because if you compared it to something else, then you wouldn't even be masking the symptoms. But, you know, for better or for worse, 
that guy says, well, usually for worse, let's be honest. Um, that guy says something, and he's got a big listenership base, and people believe what he says, no matter how erroneous it is. And so he's uh-huh. spreading, you know, bad information. Now, does the rest of the Republican administration have to answer for him? I guess not, but it seems like they should because they they listen to those, you know, opinion makers, um, you know, like Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Catherine, had you heard that statement that he made? I hadn't heard it, but it doesn't surprise me at all. You know, he's uh, the – yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and and this is – and I will say this. I I think this is one area where it will hurt Republicans, Um, and, and, you know, probably could find out some – we'll probably see some other things will hurt Democrats, but it will hurt Republicans because it is something that science and medicine and technology and research – are going to have to fight, and the Republicans in the past so many years have really eschewed science uh, in almost every vein, and eschewed learning. Like you know, oh, the old ways. You know, go chop a tree and you know start a fire. That's all you need. Um, let's not worry about book learning. Um, people are going to be like, well, we're going to need science here, and that's not going to help the um, you know Republicans. I guess conversely, you could say, oh, well. You know, because it may have started, it started in another country, and it's going to spread from country to country. And it may be too late now. There's some people are going to be like, oh, well, that's another reason to lock down our borders and become very insular. I guess that aspect could help uh, the Republicans and hurt the Democrats. Uh, Tim, what are your thoughts on what the um, reactions will be that will kind of maybe have partisan leans? Well, uh, the the chief one is, you know, the person at the top gets the credit when things go well and um, gets the blame when things do not go well. Uh, George Bush, we saw how he handled Katrina in 05, and, and it was part of what probably happened to the Republicans in the very next year's midterm elections. And then we saw uh, President Obama in um, 2012 with a very opposite reaction when when a hurricane two weeks before the election uh, hit the Northeast, and that was probably part of, of him winning. Uh, now, if this thing gets out of hand, so much that it disrupts the world economy and causes a major downturn here. Uh, the president's going to be seen as at fault because the storyline will be that we were not prepared and he's going to suffer the consequences electorally. That That's just, you know, that's, that's going to happen if it plays out like that. They always blame the person at the top when things go bad, and the person at the top always gets the credit when things go well, regardless of, of, of anything else. That, that's just set in stone. Yeah, Catherine, I think Tim made a good uh, point there comparing it to a, a hurricane and natural disaster because this is something that's outside of um, a leader's control. I mean, no matter how much we might be for one party or the other, we don't think that the other side, you know, 
creates uh, havoc with natural disasters or diseases, you know, um, acts of nature or God. But this is, you know, occurred, and so it is how you react to it. And we know Republicans can react properly to it because Rick Scott, who's a very divisive figure who a lot of Democrats don't like that are from Florida, would always say he handled hurricane, you know, um, damage well. Like when something happened, he would respond to hurricanes. Uh, so we know that it's possible. So Donald Trump has – he was over in India, I guess, when a lot of this started, and then he came back, and he's appointed um, Mike Pence as the point man. Now, oh, if I had to pick one of the two, I'd take, Donald, <laughs> I'd take uh, Mike Pence over Donald Trump. But to me, this is a perfect situation to take your um, director of, her, of housing and urban development who has a medical degree who probably knows very little about housing and urban development and at least get him back in a medical medical capacity. Um, what in the world uh, – what was the thinking behind Mike? Oh, I'm sure that it was uh, – I think the fact that he's a former governor and uh, he has a um, – I mean, he's the vice president, and it's the kind of a vice president type of thing to put to to, to do to be in charge of this, you know, medical uh, potential medical crisis. Um, but I think the fact that he was a governor plays into it. He even talked about that when he was on uh, whatever Meet the Press, or I think it was Meet the Press this morning. So um, that didn't really surprise me that he put Pence in charge. It's also a way to uh, lock off some blame if it goes badly, maybe. But I don't think he'll be able to do that. I think I think Tim's absolutely right. You know, the he'll get if it goes badly, he'll get the blame. If it goes well, he'll get the credit. But, yeah, and um, I did hear a report, Tim, that um, he said, you know, Mike Pence really doesn't have anything else to do, which obviously means you didn't delegate authority very well. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, having Mike Pence for this? Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, what about your health and human services uh Secretary or, 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 or Homeland Security? How about that? I yeah. mean, what are they? What are they going to do with this? How about the people that are in charge of such things at the CDC? Uh, although Trump got rid of a lot of them, there's still a lot of them there. What What about them? And what about this gag order that was immediately imposed? That basically the um, Folks down at the CDC cannot make any public statements or hold press conferences or things like that unless they clear it through the vice president's office. Now, why are they choking off communication like that with the public? Uh, Is it so that they can control it? Yes. Uh, And that gets into my That don't look good to me. Yeah, that gets to the next layer of this. You know, this is um, something where communication is going to be pretty key. Getting information out to people that they may need to do things to prevent the spread, to prevent, you know, erroneous fears. I mean, like I heard that Corona beers um, stock sales or their their, uh, sales are down. I mean, that's just people that are just not getting good information. Chinese food restaurants or Chinese restaurants – um, their um, 
sales are down right now. I mean, once again, that's just not good, um, you know, logic and science there. So communication is lacking. The Trump administration from day one has had trouble with communication, and it only gets worse from press secretary to press secretary. We went from um, Sean Spicer, then to um, Huckabee, Sarah Sanders Huckabee, and now we have Stephanie Grisham, who just doesn't even hold press briefings anymore. How are you going to disseminate information if you don't even hold press briefings, Catherine? <laughs> well, you're not. You're going to you're going to send out uh, you know press releases and not answer any questions and not let any of the scientists talk and control the message. That's that's the that's the mo of this administration. Yeah, uh, Tim, you know, I mean, we've all seen that guy's what so we all seen, but you've seen movies like Outbreak um, where they, they talk about these kind of pandemics, and one part is people don't panic, this is what you need to know, blah, blah, blah. Communications is a big part of this. Um, can the Republican, or I'm sorry, can the Trump administration kind of change their ways on at least this um, situation? Of course not. They're not going to do that. They're going to do what they've always done, which they uh, view as a tried and true formula, and and that is successful for them. I think he'll disseminate a lot of information the way he does now through Twitter, or a few sound bites with the reporters on his way to the helicopter. Uh, are at his rallies where if any bad news comes out, well, that's not real news. That's uh, part of the, you know, the Democrats, the media, the this, the that, you know, the Chinese, you know, everybody's in on it. I, I, I don't know how they figure the World Health Organization's in on it, but this stuff about we got this under control and this ain't really a big deal. And, and uh, I mean, people can read the stats. They know, I mean, like Sanjay Gupta uh, just faced the president with this the other day when, when Trump said that the flu, the flu is more lethal. No, it's not. This is 20 times more lethal than the flu is. The The difference is there's just more cases of the flu because it's been around forever, and this thing just got started two months ago, but it's killing 2% of everybody that gets it, and the flu kills one-tenth of 1% 1 of the people that get it. And that sort of thing needs to stop. Don't stand up there like... The president did yesterday and said we have 22 cases when it's a drop-dead fact that we have we had 60 the day before. How could we go backwards to 22? You know, they got to stop that sort of thing. I don't believe they will, though. Everything is political to this president, and if anybody criticizes him or asks questions – they're the ones that's being political and not supporting him. And that's what we're simply facing right now. It, it, it's the darndest thing you've ever seen. Yes. Well, Catherine, Tim mentioned the rallies as a way to um, disseminate information. Doesn't that make the whole um, issue even more partisan when you do things like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's 
it's uh, do what I say, not what I do, and um, com- trying to completely control the message. But the thing is, is that he's not able to because, you know, the, the news is covering it in a much more um, scientific and um, accurate way. You know, mm-hmm. the regular, like, ABC News. Um, you know, I watch Good Morning America most days, and they have a story on it every day. They have their, you know, uh, online, their, you know, standard, whatever she's called, their health reporter on every day talking about, no, you don't need a mask. Here's when you need a mask. And, you know, wash your hands and all the sort of standard things that, um, you know, trying to not instill fear but educate everybody about what the best ways to counteract your um, vulnerability and yeah yes well Catherine um, and then that's a good place to kind of end our first topic and move on to our guest that we're so excited about a professor at George Mason University and longtime contributor head political contributor at CNN welcome back to the kudzu vine Mr. William Snyder thank you glad to be here Yes, uh, glad to be back, and we're going to kind of transition off of the um, um, coronavirus and on to the um, Democratic um, primary race mainly, although we may end up asking a few more other things, but the first one I'll ask about is to, uh, based on last night's results. I knew I was going to ask you a question about uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, and I know which way to go with this now. Uh, Joe Biden has been running for president in 2019. Um, 88, 2008, um, he's never won a primary, never finished, I guess, in the whole race as far as just kind of like how he did any better than you could say fourth. And I heard some Republican um, consultants say, well, you know, it's just going to be the same old Joe Biden. He's not going to win this time either. Well, last night he won South Carolina by 29 points, and he seems back in this race. Why is this time different for Joe Biden? Well, for one thing, he won South Carolina with an enormous uh, surge of support from African-American voters. Black voters in South Carolina voted four to one for Joe Biden. Part of that, of course, is that uh, he was Obama's vice president, but also he's been very good on their issues. And uh, they appreciate it, and they're showing some gratitude. But that is a very, very strong endorsement from a crucial constituency in the Democratic Party. Black voters are the Democratic Party's base. They vote for the Democrat when nobody else does. They voted for Walter Mondale. They voted for George McGovern. They're there for Democrats no matter what. Yes, and I guess moving forward, some states on Super Tuesday have a large African-American population. Some states don't. Do you think how well he did in South Carolina will then translate to better results in, say, uh, Utah or uh, um, Colorado? Well, I think he'll get some more votes, and the reason for that, the reason I think he'll do better, I'm not predicting he'll win, but I I do think he'll do better, uh, is because there are an awful lot of Democrats who want to stop Bernie Sanders. They think that if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the ticket, the Democrats will get wiped out. That includes most of the superdelegates in the party. They're terrified that they will all lose their offices if they have to run with the socialist, Sanders, at the top of the Democratic ticket. So some people will see Biden as the best bet to stop Sanders. But right now, Sanders is way ahead in California 
and California has over 400 delegates. So that's going to be a tough hill to climb for Biden. Yes, sir. And I'm going to switch gears and ask about a different candidate. Um, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, he did um, so well in the Iowa caucus. Now, the Iowa caucus was a mess, but if there was any winners out of it, Pete Buttigieg seemed to get the most uh, caucus support. And then he went to New Hampshire, and he finished a very close second to um, neighboring state senator Bernie Sanders. And he would had these really good one-two showing. And then he got seemingly no bounce out of it in Nevada and did even worse in South Carolina. And we just, it was just reported on political wire and Vox in the last hour that he's going to suspend his campaign. Um, why did mayor Pete Buttigieg not get any, um, uh, more bounce out of those two early state showings than he did? He got some interest. Um, and what he proved is that in face to face relationships, when he campaigns to people personally, as he did in Iowa and in New Hampshire, those are very small states, and you can meet a lot of voters personally. That's what they require. Well, he can be very engaging and very impressive, but he doesn't really have a substantial constituency of Democratic supporters who will turn out in a larger state, like African-American voters who don't know. They don't dislike him. They don't know anything about him. A lot of African-American voters are very religious, and they don't want to vote for a gay man, so that's part of the equation. But voters who don't know him, don't, don't know Mayor Pete, don't see any reason to support him. The voters who know him like him, but that's a small number. Yes, and one follow-up question. Okay, he's not going to be you know, the presidential nominee. Uh, Indiana, his home state's up, you know, if you – put the 50 states up, it's probably on the more socially conservative side of the 50 states. But considering his home state and he did so well, could he parlay this into a run, a successful run for governor or U.S. Senate? Well, I think he will probably try. Uh, he'll probably run for those offices because he's not going to get too much further in electoral in national electoral politics. Uh, as a candidate, unless he wins a statewide office. That's tough in Indiana. Indiana is a very religious state. Look at Mike Pence, the former governor of Indiana. He's a leader of the religious right. And those voters, religious voters, really are reluctant to support a gay person, a man who's married to another man. That's an issue. Nobody much talks about it, but it is a real issue. And he's also pretty liberal for Indiana in his political views. He has to be to run for the Democratic nomination for president. So I think it'll be tough, but he really does have to win a higher office somewhere, and presumably that would be his home state of Indiana, just to demonstrate that he can go beyond his, his local success. Yes, well, thank you so much for those uh, answers, those questions. I'm going to pass it to Tim, who will pass it to Catherine. Tim? Uh, good evening, Professor. Thank you for being with us tonight. My uh, pleasure. Back in January, you wrote a rather interesting article titled uh, The Democrat Strategy Conundrum. Uh, is it a movement or a coalition? Oh. Now we have results from four, the first four standalone contests before the, the big day on Tuesday. So now can we divine an answer? Is it, 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 are, are we looking at a coalition this year or a movement or both? 
Well, we, we see a movement within the Democratic Party. That's Bernie Sanders. He always mm-hmm. stands up before audiences and he says, I am the leader of a movement, not mm-hmm. just the political party. Well, there's mm-hmm. a difference I wrote in that article. Mm-hmm. Uh, our political parties have historically been coalitions. If you want to join a coalition, you only ask one question. Do you support our candidate? No other questions are asked. You can have a diversity of views on a lot of issues, but as long as you support the candidate, you come here and you sit by us. You're one of us. In a movement like Bernie Sanders is trying to create, they ask lots of questions. What's your view on whether we should tax the wealthy? Should there be Medicare for all? Uh, What about your views on abortion rights? I mean, they ask a dozen questions about all these issues, and you really have to agree on everything to be included in the movement. If If you don't agree on everything... They can expel you. They can throw you out. Conservatives do that, too. Remember the Tea Party? Uh, They opposed a lot of Republicans because they weren't good on every issue. That is alien, historically, to American politics. That's not the way we operate. Movements are too narrowly based. And I think that's the risk that Democrats are running this year. If Bernie Sanders becomes the Democratic Party nominee, um, he will try to define the Democratic Party as a movement. And the result is he'll lose a lot of voters. Now, historically, we know that when we think of coalitions, obviously the first president comes to mind, Franklin Roosevelt, or it does to me. He won big with the coalition. Um, Ronald Reagan, back in the 80s, seemed to ride the crest of a movement and sweep into office with it. That began with, with perhaps Barry Goldwater or Bill Buckley before him. And both of those presidents achieved uh, similar electoral results. Which of the two do you think is more sustainable in the long run, a movement or a coalition? Uh, Well, a coalition tends to be temporary. Uh It it is there as long as the one issue or candidate that holds it together is there. And that's why things can change so rapidly in American politics. I regard Reagan like Roosevelt – as a mm-hmm. coalition leader. What Roosevelt did was he created a coalition of interests which were extremely diverse. It included racists and intellectuals and farmers and labor union members uh, and, and blacks. It included all kinds of groups who had one thing in common. They all wanted something from the federal government. And Roosevelt gave it to them. Ronald Reagan created a movement that included a variety of interests, including religious voters, uh, including racial backlash voters, uh, including a lot of business people and taxpayers. Reagan's movement, or rather Reagan's coalition, was based on one thing. Everybody in that coalition resented the federal government for something. They didn't want high taxes. They didn't want a lot of regulations. They didn't like the civil rights agenda. They thought that the courts were anti-religious. Anybody who had a gripe with the federal government, and that's a lot of Americans, supported the Reagan coalition. And that's why it lasted what, well, it lasted a long time. It defined American politics for the last quarter of the 20th century, right into the new century. These were all people who had a, who had a basis for resenting or opposing the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, you mentioned a, a, a few minutes ago the emerging Stop Sanders movement um, among those in the Democratic establishment. Now... We all recall, of course, that there was a movement among Republicans in 2016 
to stop Trump, and they failed. And, and so the question comes up, are, are, are we essentially looking at a repeat of the same scenario in 2020 uh, only in the Democratic Party, or is this different from 2016, do you think? I think it's pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that the reason this, the, the Never Trump movement failed to stop Trump is they couldn't come up with a candidate. They couldn't uh-huh. unite behind some alternative to Trump who could beat him. If mm-hmm. they could, if they did, a conservative, you know, someone like Mitt Romney, it's possible that they would have beaten Trump. I don't think they would have, but it's possible. You mm-hmm. can't win a horse race without a horse. That's <laughs> the same problem yeah. that the Democrats are facing right now. They want to stop uh-huh. Sanders. But who's going to do it? Who's going to be their candidate? Is it going to be Amy Klobuchar? Is it going to? It won't be Pete Buttigieg. Is it going to be? It looks like it might be Joe Biden. In fact, I think he's emerging as the stop Trump candidate, uh, just because he's different from Donald Trump. Maybe he can do it. He'll get a lot of votes from people who aren't particularly crazy about Joe Biden, but they really don't want to turn the party over to Bernie Sanders. So it's possible that Biden will be the one who is the candidate to stop Trump. Uh, to stop uh, Sanders. Now, you know that we don't, you know, unlike the Republicans, we, we don't do winner-take-all primaries and that sort of thing, so that if someone gets a, a lead of two or 300 delegates, as we have seen in our own party's recent histories, it, it's hard to run them down. As a result of the new superdelegate rule, though, that I believe they passed two years ago, where superdelegates cannot vote in the first uh, round of balloting um, in Milwaukee, is it very possible that for the first time since 1952, we are looking at absolutely no winner on the first ballot? It is entirely possible. Uh, in fact, I'd say it's more than possible. It may be likely, because you don't unless all the candidates that are losing get out of the race, you could have the vote divided among five or six candidates. So far, they're leaving one by one. Um, if it's a if it's one on one, if it's Biden versus Sanders, which it could be, and everyone else leaves the race, then one of those two is likely to get a majority of the vote. It's only two candidates. But if you still have Amy Klobuchar and you still have Michael Bloomberg and you still have other candidates in the race, there may not be a first ballot majority. The party, rulers say, the party rules say you have to win a majority on the first ballot to be the nominee. Then you're going to have a real big fight in Milwaukee because on the second ballot, the delegates can vote for anybody they want. It doesn't even have to be a candidate running for president. Some of them are talking about voting for Michelle Obama to stop Bernie Sanders from being the nominee. Um, mm-hmm. They can vote for anybody they want, and the superdelegates then can vote on the second ballot. And there are over 770 superdelegates, so they can make a big difference. And let me tell you, those superdelegates are terrified of running on a ticket led by Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. They are all, all of them are in the politics business. They're, they hold office. They're afraid that they will be wiped out completely if they if the Democrats put a socialist at the top of the ticket. So they will mm-hmm. do whatever they can to stop Sanders. Mm-hmm. Now, then, then we run into the deal of, um, well, what if Senator Sanders goes to uh, the convention with a clear 
plurality of delegates, but not quite a majority. And uh, the superdelegates band together to overturn him, and many are predicting a party-wide split. And there are others who are saying, well, it will be even worse if we uh, go ahead and give the nomination to Senator Sanders. We'll go down in flames a la 1972 and McGovern. Is there a a, a good scenario to come out of this, or or is it just a no-win scenario? It's a difficult scenario, and I I would say whichever path the Democrats take – it's going to be difficult for them. They, if they mm-hmm. try to nominate someone um, other than Sanders, if Sanders comes to the convention with a plurality but not a majority, not enough to win on the first ballot, and the delegates on the second ballot or third or fourth nominate somebody else, he's not going to sit there quietly and accept it, and his people mm-hmm. won't. They're very fiercely angry people. They'll take mm-hmm. to the streets. They'll disrupt mm-hmm. the convention. That's something the Democrats are going to have to expect. But as you just said... Most of the superdelegates say, you know, we can take that. We can live with that. The The problem is we can't live with a socialist at the top of the Democratic ticket. And they're willing to do anything they can to stop Sanders from being nominated. So, yeah, you could see an open split in the party, and you could see some delegates leaving the convention and taking to the streets. I'm not predicting another Chicago like 1968, but it'll be, mm-hmm. it'll be something like that. In 1968... Hubert Humphrey did not – he won the nomination, but he never ran in a single primary. In those mm-hmm. days, you didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Now you do, but those days, you didn't have to. Mm. Well, I thank you for, for the answers to those questions, and we will pass it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hello, Professor. Thank you for being on the show tonight. We uh, really appreciate your insight. Um, I'm going to ask you about um, the women candidates. You know, I think we were all very hopeful. We had, uh, what, four strong women candidates starting out. Now we're down to, I guess Tulsi Gabbard is still in. I haven't, we haven't really heard from her lately, but uh, we lost to. Kamala very early, and I think everyone thought she was a strong candidate. And then now we're with Amy and uh, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, but neither of them have made uh, much of a mark in these uh in these uh, caucuses and, ele- and uh, primaries so far, what do you think the um, what do you think is going on uh, about uh, on that? I mean, we, we saw Hillary Clinton rise to the to the as the nominee last time, and we can't really get much of a start from the women running. To, and now, and I think they're they've all been relatively strong. So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think on Super Tuesday, there's a good chance that Elizabeth Warren will lose Massachusetts, her own state. Uh, Sanders might, he's ahead of her now in the polls in Massachusetts. If she loses Massachusetts to Bernie Sanders, my guess is she'll have to leave the race because she's competing on some of the same issues. She takes she takes most of the same positions that he does, even though they got into a bit of a squabble and she's been openly critical of Bernie Sanders. They stand for basically the same things. Um are the women losing because they're women? There are some people who won't vote for a woman. I, you know, you can't deny that. They won't say so openly, but they, they, you, you know, that is a, a problem for all men. I mean, I was amazed that a gay man, Pete Buttigieg, got as far as he did. People simply ignored the fact they didn't care about the fact that he was gay. Um, women, I think, 
there's no reason why a woman couldn't be nominated or even elected. Uh, it would be a departure, of course. It's never happened here. Other countries, Israel, Britain, Italy, I don't know about Italy, but uh, many countries have had women prime ministers, women leaders, India, um, and it hasn't made a difference at all. My guess is it could happen in the United States. It all depends on what woman and what the times are. The question of the times is critical. A presidential candidate has to be the right candidate for the times. There has to be a market for what the candidate is trying to sell. And you know what Joe Biden is trying to sell and one reason why he might succeed? He's selling normalcy. He's a normal politician, a normal guy. And to a lot of voters, after four years of Donald Trump and chaos and disruption and outrage, normalcy sounds pretty good. Yeah, I, I I think that's I, I think part of the reason is also that um, Democrats are so anxious to um, beat Donald Trump that they don't want to take any risk, and they and there's some feeling that a woman is a risk. Nominating a woman would be some some sort of risk since we've never been able to successfully um, do it thus far. So. Well, thank I, I you think for you're your right. comments on that. I, I, I think you're spot on. And I'm going to pass it back to David now. Okay. Yes, well, uh, Mr. Snyderworth, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, as Tim alluded to, you're writing articles. Um, if people want to read your work or follow you on social media, I guess they could sign up for classes at George Mason, but where are some other places <laughs> they could um, well, expose writing- your work? Yeah. Okay, I, I I did write a book in 2018. It's a little bit out of date. It's a couple of years old called, um, what was it called? I can't remember the name of my own book. Standoff, uh, How America Became Ungovernable. That was right when Trump was had just taken office. But it, when I'm, I write about uh, politics quite regularly for a publication called The Hill. The Hill is the newspaper of Capitol Hill. Uh, It's published here in Washington. It's mostly online. It can be read all over the country. Just look up The Hill. Put my name in, Bill Schneider, The Hill, and you'll see what I've written most recently. And what I've written most recently came out this morning. It was an article about the South Carolina Democratic primary. Yes, well, I'm sure that will be a great reading to add to our discussion we've just had. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you again, sir. Thank you, sir. Okay. Yes, that was uh, Bill Snyder just over the past um, few decades, the one of the absolute best political analysts um, there's been. Uh, just, a, just a great honor to have him on to answer all these questions about the race. And now that kind of segues us into the last segment of our show um, to be able to talk about um, – you know, the primary and what's going on. Let's start off with this. We've mentioned Pete Buttigieg. Catherine, Tom Steyer just dropped out. Um, what are your thoughts on his campaign and him getting out and what the impact will be? Well, I'm, you know, I, I think uh, I, I admire him uh, for, you know, recognizing that his best shot to go further was in South Carolina. He spent a lot of time there. I will, I also want to, um, comment on, and I have some friends who are, who are in Selma today, it's the 55th anniversary of the um, Ed, Edmund Pettus Bridge March, and Tom Steyer is there today. Mm. Um, I have some pictures of some of my friends with him, and I just have to admire someone who got out of the race last night, but went ahead and went to the march along with, I mean, Elizabeth 
Warren is there, Bernie Sanders is there, Joe Biden is there, um, Amy Klobuchar is there, Pete Buttigieg is there. And so I, I have to admire uh, Tom Steyer. I think he really does put his money where his mouth is. And um, I'm sorry to see him go, but I'm not surprised. Yes. Uh, Tim, thoughts on Tom Steyer's campaign? Well, yeah, he recognized uh, as a result of what happened last night, and I think South Carolina, as it was for for Joe Biden, it, it, it was that was the line in the sand that he drew. He had to be viable. He only got, I believe, eleven point three percent of the vote, no delegates, and that was after uh, spending more time in that state and advertising more in that state than any other candidate in the race. So he saw no path forward, and he he did the wise thing and and suspended. So good for him. <laughs> yes, now let's continue to move through. Um, we asked Bill Snyder about his opinion of Pete Buttigieg getting out. Um, I just didn't see this coming now. I could have seen it um, last night, this morning, um, but are even waiting till Wednesday if things didn't go better Wednesday. Um, Catherine, what do you think? What do you think prompted the timing on this? You know, he said, I guess on Meet the Press or one of the shows this morning that they do their math every day, <laughs> and he must have done his math today and figured out that there wasn't the uh, financial support or the. Uh, you know, delegate numbers to make it work. And it just took him a little bit longer than this morning or this afternoon. And he had waited until now to uh, say it was likely. So, yeah, I would, yeah. Say, I would think why not, why not wait till Wednesday? But Yeah, I think the motivation is important here. And, you know, he's really been critical of Bernie Sanders. Um, to me, if he really – um, thinks he doesn't have a shot and he hurts um, a candidate opposing Bernie Sanders, that very well could have been his motivation. Um, but I did see this. Somebody tweeted, now these poll numbers were old before um, Saturday, that like 21% would go to um, Bernie Sanders, 20% to Joe Biden, 19 to Elizabeth Warren, and 19 to Amy Klobuchar. I mean, everybody was right there bunched together within the margin of error, or maybe Bloomberg was thrown in there instead of Klobuchar. Irregardless, it was um, everybody, like it split equally among candidates, although Matthew Dowd, who actually retweeted it with a comment, don't trust polls that were taken before Saturday um, and the South Carolina primary results. I think that was astute advice. Um, Tim, what do you think the political implications are going to be this for this on Super Tuesday? Well, uh, I don't know if it has enough time to really take between now and Tuesday, but I imagine that um, the remaining moderate candidates will benefit some from it. Biden will, um, uh, Klobuchar might, uh, and Bloomberg possibly might as well. Um, but he, w- he was down in a situation where and Catherine is probably right here. I, I think his his campaign ran out of gas and money to buy more gas at the same time. Um, 
he was he was dropping down into single digits, um, and 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 I, I I think they took a lay of the land and just saw no path forward, and and I think really they they ran out of money. So so without with, without money and and without getting a lot of votes to get a lot of money, the you know you know you're in a no way to go forward type deal and that was just it for him but i am surprised uh also as as captain was that he didn't at least wait till wednesday just to see yeah unless he really is like i mean i want to uh make sure that bernie sanders doesn't get more momentum because i'm worried about that candidacy for other democrats i mean if, if he's doing the math like that i don't know if he is um, well, we've kind of buried the lead here. The big story from last night was, um, you know, Joe Biden for a while. I mean, I guess we've known this kind of for months. And certainly after, um, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire were not, you know, very good showings for him, South Carolina was his um, line of the sand, his Waterloo. He had to put all his, push all his chips to the table and see how he did. And I, I kind of thought he'd win South Carolina, but I wasn't expecting a 28-29 point victory. Um, I, I've done my math in my head, not on paper, and so I don't know if it's 28 point what or if it rounds up to 29. But I mean, it's a, a bigger than expected victory. Um, Catherine, what does this do to reshape this race? I think it does a lot. I mean, I think that you know, significant wins really gives him a boost. And I have to say, seeing him on the news this morning, it seemed it, – it, it felt. did you see him this morning, Tim? Did I say what? Did you see Biden this morning on the TV shows? Yes. Yes, I did. I thought he, I thought he looked more confident. He was more eloquent. I mean, I think that win really not only helped him uh, – Externally, but I think it helped him internally. I think it gave him a personal boost. So good for him. And I stand corrected. I didn't think he was going to make it. So I'm, I mean, I'm glad that that you know. Thank you, thank you, uh, Congressman Clyburn, for mm-hmm. coming forward. I think that really helped him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, endorsements don't mean what they used to. But Jim Clyburn's endorsement looks really, really valuable um, as of you know the polls closed in last night. Because Tim, I was I was out uh, either shopping or out to eat or something after a long, long day running a soccer jamboree, and so I was following the news online or Twitter or whatever. And I mean, almost as soon as the polls closed, it was like we're calling this for Biden after they counted a batch of yeah. votes or I guess yeah, had the uh, entrance or the exit polls. Um, yeah, Tim, what do you think this does to the race? Well, obviously, you know, I, 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 it, it appears uh, that we are heading toward a two-person race. Now, David Plouffe last night said, in his mind now, only two people, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, can get the Democratic nomination. I'm not quite there yet. we got to see what Bloomberg does now. Bloomberg could uh, throw a, a monkey wrench in the whole works. Um, he, he could still, with the type of money he's got, uh, he, he could still theoretically 
emerge as that candidate to oppose Bernie Sanders. He could also stay in the race with his money and pull enough votes uh, away from the other moderate candidates that are remaining to actually hand the nomination to Sanders. So, you, you know, we got we got to wait and see what Bloomberg does. But if, if I'm just a guessing man, and believe me, that's all I am is a guessing man, uh, I, I understand that this uh, 28 and a half point win uh, is it, going to look different in some ways on Tuesday. I think it'll help down south. But all eyes are turned to California out there to 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 see if we have a two person race or not. Well, well, Tim, obviously the largest state in the nation, population wise, it's huge. But there's a song. Speaking of eyes, all the eyes turn to Texas. Um, mm. You know, I see I saw a map and it showed you know the the deep south. You know, Biden winning all those states from Virginia, even though it's probably not considered deep south anymore. You know, Alabama, Arkansas, you know, all those states in the deep south, Joe Biden winning. Then it had California with Sanders winning. How much is the question? Colorado and Utah, Sanders winning. I think Klobuchar winning Minnesota. And then it had Texas. And we know that some polls have shown Sanders with a uh, a lead, maybe not a gigantic lead, but a lead in Texas. But those polls were taken pre-Super Tuesday. Texas, we know, is a bit of a western state, and it's a bit of a southern state. It has, uh, in particular in the eastern half and in the big cities, a pretty sizable African-American population out west and down south near the border, a higher Latino population what is this win that Joe Biden had in South Carolina? Could it be enough, the momentum from it, to flip Texas? Uh, okay, I'm looking at 538 updates these polls daily now on these states. We're looking at, I'm looking at the state of Texas as of this morning. Bernie Sanders was sitting at 28.7, Biden at 21.1, Bloomberg at 17.7, Warren at 11.7. Now, Buttigieg was getting 8% of the vote out there. Uh, yes, he could overtake him. Um, I, 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 I know one pollster uh, recently, I believe it was public policy polling, had the race about even in Texas, the last poll they took, but that was a few days ago. He could overtake him. But the thing is, this polling shows they're going to split those delegates up out there in Texas. Out there in California, we're talking about 415 delegates. In the last poll, Sanders had a 20-point lead up there. And no one else was even at 15%. Uh, if someone else gets to 15%, it could cost Bernie Sanders. That's the difference in him winning California by 150 delegates or by 250 delegates or more. California is the important state. I agree with you, David, that, that Biden is going to probably win North Carolina, Alabama, 
Oklahoma, maybe Virginia. Uh, but it's not going to be enough to overcome 415 delegates. If Sanders were to sweep those delegates, uh, it'd be hard to catch him because we don't do winner take all. The math. Yeah, well, or what it will be is maybe he, maybe it's a con- contested convention, but then Bernie Sanders would go into um, the convention with more delegates than Joe Biden would before the, right. the super delegates, you know, get involved. Right. And, and so that that you know, you make a good point about California. And I would say if you're going to have like a primary race, irregardless of the order, that's going to have different states. California probably should be its own day, not thrown in with other days because it is such a giant um, to kind of split this thing up. Uh, Catherine, where do you think the most momentum um, from this will go for Joe Biden? And then in turn, where will Bernie Sanders be able to kind of, you know, coalesce his um, previous momentum? I think it's really hard to tell right now because of the, you know, incredible results. in South Carolina for Joe Biden. I think, you know, you might have some people changing their minds uh, because of that, those results, or, um, and, and now that Buddha judges out, what is that, what impact does that have? But I do, obviously, I think California is going to be a really important uh, bellwether for the whole thing. Yeah, and I think I do think this. Um, Joe Biden will now get over the fifteen percent threshold in California. I think so. I think that will happen, and I also think he'll flip Texas. Um, I think you know he may not win Texas by a lot. It may be win Texas by two or three percentage points. But once again, well, when you talk about big population states, and as far as the um, mental side of that, but we're like, yeah, California's big, but Texas is the next biggest state. And so um, that's going to help perception-wise. So I think this is really – David Plus right. This is a two-person race, mano a mano, Sanders-Biden, and then a contested convention. And if it gets down to those two, you obviously think then the winner's going to have to come out of those two, even in a contested convention. Uh, it'd be hard to choose well, choice C – unless something we can't predict now happens. Uh, Here's why I'm just not quite there yet on Tuesday. Are the results in South Carolina going to have time to bake in on their own? Because that's the only thing that could change it. Because at this point, Bernie Sanders has spent $20 in advertising for every dollar that Joe Biden has spent in the uh, Super Tuesday states, and his organization is second to none in those states. Yeah, that's a good point. There's another thing. Biden will do better in Texas. Why? Because the Hispanic voters in Texas are more conservative than the Hispanic voters in California. The Hispanic voters in California are a lot like the Hispanic voters in Nevada. We saw what happened in Nevada. I still say let's stay up late on Tuesday night till the polls close in California at 11 o'clock and see what's going on out there before we jump to any conclusion 
about anything that's been going on back in the eastern part of the country because I agree with you that Biden is going to do pretty well down here in the southeast. Why? Well, the same scenario that we just saw in South Carolina, African-American voters, and he he destroyed Bernie Sanders among those voters. Uh but we're looking at something different out there in California for the reasons that I said. So let's keep our eye on that. If Biden clears that 15% like you say he's going to do, uh, David, and even better, if both he and Bloomberg clear it, uh, we got a horse race. We got a yeah. horse race then. And that's what I think you'll have. Um, you know, I've been saying for a while, you know, just wait for South Carolina um, I just had a gut feeling that you know that Joe Biden would be able to hold on and it would reshape the race. I mean, there was a chance, yeah, that his showings earlier would kind of melt him down. I think Nevada finishing second um, made him we're not going to we're we're not going to have to wait long to test your theory. <laughs> no, that's right. No, not. Not. And we shall see. I mean, I tell you another thing. I think I heard this online that. Um, that Joe Biden probably didn't do that well with uh, white liberal voters, but the fact that so many African American women gave him their stamp of approval, that may actually cause them to rethink and say, "Hey, maybe we'll give Joe Biden a second look." So he may pick up pockets of support we didn't expect. Another thing, you're talking about money. I sent y'all something a while back. Joe Biden had really not raised that much money, but if you looked at his poll numbers, he was getting more. Poll number support per dollar spent than any candidate in the race, and it wasn't even close. Now we've actually had actual votes and delegates cast, and I'm pretty sure I want to see the metric, but based on what I knew before, I bet he's gotten more votes per dollar, more delegates per dollar than any candidate in the race. And that's that's a pretty good place to be because, I mean, Mike Bloomberg could just be burning money in a burn barrel right now. And I don't know if we'd know the difference. He's spending it so fast. Mm -hmm. So the person that can actually take a bit of funds and get support is pretty impressive to me because I don't know about y'all, but I wish campaigns didn't cost so much. Um, I think we could do this process without it costing a billion dollars a you know, nominee. Well, you'll have um, to talk to the Supreme Court about that. Oh, I know. I know. It, it's, uh, you know, Citizens United and everything else, but um, – you know, maybe if somebody proves that you don't have to spend a billion dollars to win the nomination, and then we don't know what the general will look like, maybe then people will say, "Oh, well, it's it's you can actually just talk about issues and not run campaign ads on every show that exists, every other ad." Um, mm -hmm. But great to have uh, Bill Snyder on for the third time, and just a great discussion between us. Until next week, it's been the Cozy Vine. Good night, Good night guys. Not about it. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force?